Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. He is the first person 
to rightly identify that Jesus is the Son of God. And the centurion is likely in charge of Jesus' execution. And so what is it that convinces him that Jesus is who he says he is? Perhaps it's Jesus' final cry that's mentioned in verse 37. Perhaps it's the darkness mentioned in verse 33. And in the Bible, darkness signifies the punishment of evil. We see this, for example, in Isaiah chapter 13 and Joel chapter 2. Or perhaps it's that the curtain of the temple has been torn in two, as we read in verse 38. And that would require some explanation. What does it mean that the curtain of the temple is torn in two? Well, there were actually two curtains in the temple. One separated the courtyard and the holy place. The other curtain was inside the holy place and blocked off the innermost shrine, which is known as the Holy of Holies. Now, in verse 38, Mark doesn't tell us which curtain was torn. But the author of Hebrews sheds some light on the subject. He says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place. And the author of Hebrews goes on to explain how Christ entered the Most Holy Place to purchase the salvation of his people. And the argument continues on in the Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So Mark in verse 38 doesn't tell us which curtain is torn, but the author of Hebrews tells us that the torn curtain is the second curtain that divides off the holy of holies. The author of Hebrews explains that the curtain of the temple is torn in two, and Jesus leads his people into the Holy of Holies and reconciles them with God the Father. With Jesus' death, the old religious order comes to an end. The curtain is torn from top to bottom, which means no human being could have torn it. This is a divine rift. A divine maneuver, a divine retort of judgment against the Jewish people and their leaders in the temple system that had become corrupted. You know, just a few verses earlier, the passers-by mocked Jesus' claim that he would destroy the temple. The temple was torn in two to illuminate the significance of the death of Jesus as the thing that brings down the old order of the Jewish priesthood and establishes the new order of the new covenant of Christ's priesthood, where salvation is mediated by the shed blood of the Lamb of God, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus the Son. The torn curtain is a sign that new life will come from the destroyed temple of Jesus' body, and that by his death he is opening the way into the presence of God. And so whatever it is that convinces the centurion, whether it's Jesus' final cry, whether it's the darkness or the torn curtain, probably just a combination of, of all of these things, whatever it is that convinces the centurion, we see in verse 39 that the centurion is convinced that he has killed the Son of God. Now throughout the Gospel of Mark, no human is able to explicitly identify Jesus Christ as the Son of God until this moment. 
Now, Jesus Christ is identified as the Son of God by the divine voice from heaven in Mark chapter 1 and Mark chapter 9. Jesus is identified as the Son of God by the demons in Mark chapter 3 and chapter 5. But until the centurion makes this confession, no human in the book of Mark identifies Jesus as the Son of God. Why? Well, because it is impossible to understand the full identity of Jesus Christ without understanding his death. And the centurion is the first to stand before the cross with faith. And so we see that the end of Mark's gospel conforms to the beginning. Mark announced at the beginning of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this truth is understood at the end of Mark's gospel by a Gentile, no less. And so the first person that plays a role in the death of Christ is the centurion. The second group of people to play a role in the death of Christ are the women who are mentioned in verses 40 and 41. So look at it with me. Starting in verse 40, you should note here that, that, that what's happening here with the women is an echo of what's said in Psalm chapter 38, verse 11. But picking up here in verse 40, it says, There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there was also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And then if you skip down to verse 47, we get another word about the women. It says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So what role do the women play in the death of Christ? Well, three things. First, they witness Jesus' death. And according to the description of these women, they should be referred to as disciples. That's what it said of them in verse 41, that they followed him and they ministered to him. These are disciples of Jesus. These are followers of Jesus who contributed to Jesus' ministry. And this account shows us that there are witnesses present to observe all that is taking place. They see Jesus crucified, thus confirming the crucial fact that Jesus really died. So first, they witness Jesus' death. Second, in verse 47, they witness Jesus' burial, thus confirming that they knew where Jesus was buried and did not go to the wrong tomb on Sunday morning, as the second century Gnostics suggested. And the third thing, the third role they play in the death of Christ, is their inclusion in the historical record of the death and resurrection of Christ proves that the gospel accounts of Jesus are accurate. How so? Well, in the first century Roman world, Things were a little different than they were, or things were a little different than they are now. In the first century Roman world, in a court of law, the testimony of a male slave was believed over the testimony of a woman. Thus, for the gospel writers to include women as the primary witnesses of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection proves the validity of it. How so? Well, if they are just making it all up, if they're just inventing this story about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they would have needed to include at least some witnesses that were believable, according to the standards of the day. And so the role of the women is of paramount importance. 
They confirm the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. And ironically, these unbelievable witnesses, according to the Roman legal practices, these unbelievable witnesses make the account of Jesus' death all the more believable. And so we see that the centurion plays a role in the death of Christ. We see that the women play a role in the death of Christ. And the third person to play a role in the death of Christ in these verses is God the Father, as recorded in verse 34, which says, And at the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what role did God the Father play in the death of God the Son? Well, the role of God the Father in the death of Christ is spelled out clearly in verse 34. God the Father forsook God the Son. Why did God the Father forsake God the Son? Well, we see in verse 33 an unusual occurrence. Great darkness came over the whole area. And again, throughout human history, God has often used darkness to accompany His divine judgment. Another example of this is in Exodus chapter 10. The great darkness that is described is a cosmic revelation of God's judgment. And in the midst of this horrific moment, Jesus cannot remain silent any longer. He unleashes this tortured cry. And the torture that Jesus endures, understand, is not just physical pain. If that is all you understand of Jesus' suffering, then I can assure you, you don't fully understand Jesus' suffering. Many have endured the horrors of a Roman crucifixion. But no human being has ever experienced pain on this level. Because on this day, in this moment... God the Son is exposed to the fury of God the Father's righteous wrath toward sin. Some theologians have referred to this as the scream of the damned. And the word damn is rightly understood as a cuss word, or maybe more properly, a curse word in Christian circles. And the reason is because for someone to be damned is for them to be condemned by God to suffer eternal punishment in hell. And Christians know this is a very weighty matter, and so these things don't find their way on our lips very often. And so theologians have used the word here, not because children need to be using the word, but because all of us need to learn the theology of condemnation that Christ experienced for us. It is this moment... It is this act of God the Father toward God the Son that delivers us from hell when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced hell for His people. And that's what's described in verse 34. And so the role of the centurion, the women, and God the Father shows us that this is no ordinary death. The death of Christ is truly unique. This is not just the death of another person. This is not just the death of a good person. This is the death of God. This is the death of the God-man. And in it all, we see that the condemnation of Christ means three things. 
First, Christ's condemnation means entrance rather than rejection. Christ's condemnation means entrance rather than rejection. As cruel as the human mockery was, as painful as the beatings, thorns, whips, and nails were, the most horrible moment for Jesus on the cross is verse 34, when God the Father forsakes him. These words reverberate back through the centuries to the first horrible moment in human history, the sinful rebellion of Adam and Eve. God created them to know, enjoy, and commune with him forever. But when they sinned and ate of the tree, they separated themselves from God. They alienated themselves from God, away from his presence. That's why God put them out of the garden. Thousands of years passed where sinful man was separated from holy God. The agonies of life in the fallen world stem from this broken relationship. And this is why God the Son came to earth to live the life we couldn't and die the death we deserved. Which means God loves you to the point of death. God's love is earnest to the point of death. And that's something we need to store up in our hearts and store up in our minds because you're going to go through moments, you're going to go through seasons where it feels like God's not listening to your prayers, God's not hearing your prayers, things are difficult. And then the next day things are difficult and these things pile on each other and you start to wonder, does God really love me? And what you must do in those moments, which will inevitably come in the life of every Christian, what you must do is remember that Christ Jesus loves you to the point of death. His love for you is greater than you can imagine. And so on the cross, in this moment, Christ willingly endures the Father's rejection so that you will know His acceptance. In Christ's tortured cry, the Father is separating Himself from the Son, breaking an eternity of perfect fellowship, love, and communion together. Christ is experiencing the separation we deserved so that we don't have to experience that separation. Christ is purchasing your entrance into the kingdom of God with the heavenly Father, which is the source of all goodness, all love, and all joy. And by faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are given access to the Father. That's what the torn curtain means. You are no longer alienated from God or separated from God. Christ is taking your hand and walking you into the throne room of God and telling the Father, He's with me. She's with me. These are your children. And so through Christ, you are given access to God the Father. And there's nothing you can do to get this access. There's no merit you can offer to receive this access. By faith in Christ, you are secure. By faith in Christ, you are are the children of God, and you will inherit all of the privileges of a child of God. And it's worth noting a pattern in Mark's gospel, and that is that the outsider and the Gentiles readily recognize Jesus and respond to him in faith. You see this with the leper in chapter 1. You see this with the bleeding woman in chapter 5, the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7, the father of the boy in chapter 9. The outsiders and the Gentiles readily recognize Jesus and respond to him in faith. 
which means that those people who are conventionally rejected in this world find entrance into the kingdom of God by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so first we see in this passage that Christ's condemnation means entrance rather than rejection. Second, we see that Christ's condemnation means love rather than trauma. Christ's condemnation means love rather than trauma. Now, what am I talking about and why make this point? Well, today preachers of fads, heresies, and antichrist look at the substitutionary death of Christ as cosmic trauma, as cosmic child abuse. What we have here they tell us in Mark chapter 15, is God the Father committing child abuse against God the Son. It's cosmic child abuse. For example, the Christian Century, which is the flagship journal of liberal Protestantism in the United States, ran an article in September of 2021 by Rita Brock called An Epidemic of Moral Injury. And she claims that the biblical understanding of substitutionary atonement is a form of moral injury upon human beings. She claims that the need of the day is theology that heals personal trauma for victims in this world rather than studying Christ who is victimized by God the Father. She claims that it is morally injurious to people to hear that God demands satisfaction for sin and that God required the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And she argues this creates a moral injury cycle that ensnares people in guilt, in a lifetime of guilt, in their own trauma, in their own abuse. And the result is that this stirs up this inevitable fear of dread, of eternal punishment. And so people just go on living lives of fear. And so the theological liberals claim that the substitutionary atonement of Christ is a moral injury trauma. And this argument is the very essence of liberal theology updated to match the Freudian babble of psychotherapy. But it fails. It fails to see the richness of the love of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ died in our place and bore for us the righteous wrath of God poured out upon our sin. And it also fails to understand that Jesus is not forced into this position. Jesus Christ willingly offers himself on the cross. He's not forced. He's not abused. He is willingly and lovingly sacrificing himself. This death of this man, this God-man, explains how it is that we are saved. The one who has power over the wind and the waves. The one that David described as Lord. The one who will be seated at the right hand of power and is coming with the clouds of heaven is the same Jesus who cries out in dismay from the cross in verse 34. This is the paradoxical unity of Jesus coming to die and suffer. God's mysterious plan is that the suffering son is exalted. Redemption requires that suffering and exaltation are intertwined. And that's why the sacrifice of Christ doesn't cause trauma, but it reverses trauma. The only thing that can decisively reverse traumatic events in your past 
is the fact that the powerful creator God of the universe loved you to the point of death. And this reveals to us the enormous capacity within the character of God for forgiveness and grace. Which means that that forgiveness and grace is applied to you through the work of Jesus Christ to such an extent that you are forgiven for sins in your life, even horrific sins, and also that grace can come on your life and heal past trauma. That trauma is real, and God the Father knows it, and God's grace extends to you, and it is the only decisive thing that can heal you. And so the grace of God comes upon people, and it makes them new creatures in Christ so that they can walk in the newness of life, so that they can truly be healed from past trauma. And so Christ's condemnation means first, entrance rather than rejection, and it means second, love rather than trauma. And third, and finally as we close today, Christ's condemnation means dominion rather than surrender. Of course, it seems like it's surrender. It seems like he's being killed by the powerful forces and he's, uh, he's losing here. But what you need to understand is that Christ's condemnation means dominion rather than surrender. See, Jesus' words in verse 34 are a quote from Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. And when Jesus quotes from Psalm chapter 22, he's intending a full sweep of Psalm 22. It's not just this one verse. He's intending the entirety of the psalm to be in view. And when you look at Psalm 22, you see that it depicts the enemy dividing the Messiah's garments. It depicts the passers-by who mock Jesus. The whole psalm is a prefiguration of Christ's death. Well, how does Psalm 22 end? Well, it says that all the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship Him. Psalm 22 says that the Messiah King will rule over all the nations, and this will bring prosperity and renewal to the earth that will be passed down throughout all generations. In other words, the scream of the damned in verse 34 is the fulfillment of the Lord's universal dominion over the nations. And so Jesus' cry is not just of condemnation, but it's also a cry of hope of salvation and universal renewal. And the implications of that should deeply inform your Christian life. And that's why Christ didn't stay dead, but rose from the dead. That's the essence of salvation. It's life, it's renewal and restoration. And not just for you, but for families, for nations, indeed, for all the earth. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, you are the author and finisher of faith. The whole work of redemption is yours alone. We need the renovating and forgiving power of your grace so that we can serve and enjoy you forever. Impress us deeply with the sense of your glory so that in every step along the path, in all our way, our getting up and lying down, our end would be to serve Christ our Savior. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.